Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the dramatic differences in life expectancy between the rich and poor in America. Low-income American men have roughly the life expectancy of men in Sudan or Pakistan. Why geography plays a key role in how long people live. Plus, preparing for Zika in the U.S., one state's plan to control mosquitoes once summer arrives. And what's the best way to wash your hands? Scientists have an answer. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with the staggering gap in life expectancy between rich and poor Americans. On average, the lowest income Americans are not increasing in life expectancy at all. Low income American men have roughly the life expectancy of men in Sudan or Pakistan. That's David Cutler, an economist at Harvard and one of the authors of a new study that clearly outlines how income is tied to life expectancy. Cutler and other researchers from Harvard, Stanford, and MIT analyzed nearly 1.5 billion IRS records, and they found that the richest 1% of American men live almost 15 years longer than the poorest 1%. For women, the difference is about 10 years. And researchers also found that geography plays a huge role in all of this. The richest Americans live longer no matter where they live. But as Cutler explains, for lower-income people, location really matters. As you move down the income spectrum, particularly to say the the bottom 25% of the population, you see, first off, much bigger variations in mortality. Let's put it another way. The reason why people in New York live longer than people in Detroit on average is almost entirely because low-income people in New York live longer than low-income people in Detroit, not that high-income people live longer. And second is it's much more geographically concentrated between sort of in kind of coal country in West Virginia and the Rust Belt of the Midwest down through Oklahoma and Texas is a belt of extremely high mortality. Now, what's not exactly clear here is the why. Cutler says that some differences in life expectancy are associated with healthy behaviors, such as low rates of smoking or low rates of obesity, but there are no other clear links. Cutler says the next step is trying to answer this why question by using this data to find out which public health approaches might be most effective at closing the life expectancy gap. And the research team has made all of their data publicly available. If you'd like to read it, we have a link on our website. Just go to hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. In recent weeks, we've talked about efforts to battle Zika virus on a global scale. But now we want to take a closer look at local efforts to prepare for Zika in the U.S. Noah, there have been no locally transmitted cases in the U.S. mainland, but nearly 350 people have been sickened after traveling abroad. One of the hardest hit states has been Florida, with more than 80 imported cases of Zika. To get a sense of how Florida is preparing, we spoke with Whitney Qualls, a research scientist and vector biologist at the University of Miami. She says Florida, and Miami in particular, can be considered global entry points for Zika and other mosquito-borne illnesses. That's due in part to the fact that Miami's airport is a popular destination for travelers from Latin America. You have kind of the situation where you can have people that have been exposed and the right mosquito vectors that are kind of occurring almost all year long, also due to the temperature and environment that we have in South Florida. The two mosquitoes that officials in Florida are particularly concerned about are Aedes aegypti, which carries Zika virus, and Aedes albopictus, which may carry Zika virus in addition to carrying yellow fever, 
dengue fever, and chikungunya. Qual says that controlling these mosquitoes can be difficult because they're active during the day compared to the more common nuisance mosquitoes, which are active at night. For Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus, what we seem to find that tends to work the best is what we call service requests. So we get requests from the public that say they're having a mosquito problem. The mosquito control operators will then go to those sites and determine, you know, if it is Aedes aegypti or Aedes albopictus, and then usually they'll do some uh, source reduction, maybe some larviciding, and maybe uh, hand-held fogging. And this generally tends to work the best for, for these particular species of mosquito. Qual says one bright spot is that people can take action to keep mosquitoes away from their home by reducing standing water on their property. Those are the screeching sounds of a macaque monkey. The primate is very common in parts of Southeast Asia, and it's also the carrier of a type of malaria parasite called Plasmodium nolzai. This so-called monkey malaria is transmitted from the macaques to humans via mosquitoes. It's usually a very mild infection, rarely resulting in death, and there are a few thousand cases each year, many in Malaysia and Borneo. So why are we talking about Plasmodium nosei? Recently, there's been an increasing number of severe cases reported, and the idea is that somehow Plasmodium nosei is evolving. That's Selassie Dankwa a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Infectious Disease Research in Seattle and a recent graduate of the Harvard Chan School. While she was in Boston, she completed research showing how that monkey malaria parasite may be able to adapt to infect humans more efficiently, which could eventually lead to human-to-human transmission. Donkwa worked in the lab to identify a sugar variant called silic acid on the surface of human red blood cells that currently limit the ability of the parasite to invade the cells. Basically, the parasite prefers a different type of sugar than the one found in our cells. It's the result of a mutation that happened millions of years ago, and it's also what helps keep the infection mild. It also helps prevent human-to-human transmission. So, Amy, this is where things get a little more complicated and worrying for the scientists. Donkor wondered what would happen if humans started once again producing the type of sugar preferred by the parasite. Here's Manoj Derasing, the John Laporte Given Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School and the director of the lab where Dankwa did her work. What Selassie did was she took a parasite line, which we've adapted in the lab to grow better in human red blood cells. And this time what she was able to do is she was able to use these mutant cells that she had generated. She was able to show that the human-adapted Plasmodium nosei parasite had found a way of invading red blood cells which avoided the use of, of, of these other sugars. And so it had adapted to a silic acid-independent way of, of invading red blood cells. And the reason this is important is because if they can invade human red blood cells better, this can re- result in you know, much higher levels of infection within individuals, which is associated with um, severe disease. Also, if you actually start having more effective infections, and what you do is you, you create a much larger parasite population within the human population, this increases your chances of potentially of, of human to human transmission. Now, it's important to note that there are a lot of steps before human to human transmission happens. 
But Durasing and Dankwa say this is concerning. And there are some factors that could be contributing to this adaptation, mainly the fact that the monkeys and humans are living closer to each other, raising the chances of being bitten by a mosquito carrying the Plasmodium nolsi parasite. A main culprit is increased deforestation. Here's Donkwa again. Increased logging, farming, people living in, living and working in, close, in closer proximity to these macaques. So as humans get more exposed to parasites, there's just more chance for, so there'd be increased infection, um, more opportunity for adaptation and evolving of the parasite. Moving forward, Donkwa and Durasing say it'll be important to continue monitoring the parasite to ensure that this adaptation does not occur. And one final interesting note here, Durasing says that this discovery was actually an accident in some ways. Initially, they wanted to see if that sugar variant, silic acid, would have any impact on the emergence of Plasmodium falciparum, which is the deadliest form of malaria. Now, it turns out there was no effect there, which is when they turned their attention to Plasmodium nosei. Expanding access to maternal health care could save millions of lives each year. That's according to a new paper published this week in The Lancet. The World Health Organization estimates that 99% of maternal deaths occur in developing countries. But researchers from Johns Hopkins say some simple, low-cost interventions could make a big difference. One example would be expanded contraception. Experts estimate that simply meeting the demand for contraceptives in developing countries could prevent more than 28 million unplanned pregnancies, which would help prevent 67,000 maternal deaths. The total cost of this would be just $5 per recipient. Finally, this episode, Noah, what is the best way to wash your hands? Well, researchers in the UK actually set out to answer that question. They compared hand-washing methods from the CDC and the WHO. Now, the CDC recommends a three-step method, while the WHO recommends six steps. So which is best? Researchers studied 42 doctors and 78 nurses at a hospital in Glasgow and found that the six-step method was more effective at reducing bacteria. And as you would expect, the six-step method does take longer. Not that much longer, about 43 seconds compared to 35 seconds for the three-step method. Now, regardless of the time, just 65% of the people in the study completed a full hand-washing routine. So the study authors say more research is needed to see how compliance rates can be improved. And Amy, I did look up these hand-washing routines, both of them, and they're actually pretty complicated and detailed. So we'll put a link on the website in case anyone else out there wants to see which method works best for them. Great. And hopefully we'll get that uh, 65% rate up a little higher. Shoot for 100%. All right. (laughs) That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. You can also visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to dive deeper into some of the stories we've discussed during this episode.